Well, this morning we're picking up uh, in this little mini-series we've been doing through uh, the month of November, in which we've been looking at what's unique about Bento Church, what it is we do here as, as a church together. Uh, if you were with us last week, we specifically talked about trying to answer the question, what is a church? Uh, What is the baseline definition? There's so much that churches do and so much that God asks churches to do. But what is this fundamental, most basic thing that makes us a congregation, a church? And though it's a big question, we drew that line by saying, turning to Hebrews, that at its basic level, a church is a gathering of believers. And we took that from that verse in Hebrews, uh, where we're encouraged not to neglect the gathering together, as some have made the habit of doing. This gathering together is not just a one-off gathering. Hey, we got together for dinner, or we're a church, and then we're not a church when we depart. But it's this commitment of ongoing gathering, this lack of neglecting, but this intentionality of gathering together with believers that forms this baseline of what a church is. We talked about that Greek word that's so often translated church, ekklesia, which literally just means a coming together, a gathering of people. We picked up on uh, the way that that word is used across the New Testament, but the author of Hebrews specifically brought us to this warning about not neglecting that gathering. And as I said last week, I think one of the best spiritual disciplines that you could practice routinely, the way I like to say it to you, is just show up. It's one of the most fundamental spiritual disciplines that even Hebrews warns. Don't neglect showing up, gathering together, being present. Uh, This morning, I want to continue that series of questions. We're going to take one of these each week as we move forward. Uh, And this week, I want to ask the question, okay, we've gathered together. So what is it we do when we gather? What is a church? What does a church do? What What are we supposed to accomplish whenever we come together, whenever we gather together as a church? which is really a way of saying, what is a church service? Uh, What is it we're doing here when we come together on Sunday mornings? That might seem like so obvious a question that it's hard to to get perspective on it, something you're so close to. For some of you, you've spent your entire lives coming to church at least on Sunday mornings, if not some of you Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. You've gathered probably thousands and thousands of times in church services. And so to ask the question, what is it that we are supposed to do when we come together? Well, you have a pretty good little mental model of it. We sing some songs, we pray, we listen to a sermon, we shake a few hands, maybe you drop a check in the tithe box as it passes around, we have this pretty good sense of what a church service is. But like we looked at last week, I want to ask the bigger question, what is it, what is the baseline? What is the most fundamental thing that is happening here that all of these components that we expect in a service come together for? We're going to talk about some of those tangible things, things you expect, the prayer, the worship, the sermon, but what are the point of those things? How do we know if we're doing those things the way scripture intends us to do them when we gather together? Or if we're gathering but failing to live up these, to these expectations of a church's gathering? Um, perhaps nowhere has there been more change in the experiences of what a church is than in the service itself. You know well enough that church services look all sorts of ways, with different settings and different kinds of styles. And one of the things that you quickly find when you talk to another friend who's a believer or think about your own church experiences is we have all kinds of preferences, the kinds of services we enjoy most, the kinds of worship we seem to get the most out of. If we're going to avoid falling into the trap of talking about church services as just preferences, things that I like or things that work best for me, then we need a good definition of that fundamental thing a service is supposed to be 
so that we can ask ourselves, are we doing that? If the style's different, or the room is different, or the sermon is different at its core level, are we doing that fundamental thing we're expected to do when we gather together? And that's what I want to look at this morning. Um, I noticed this week as I was turning back to that passage from last week, Hebrews 10, where we had spent our time, that a big part of what the author's doing in Hebrews, when he gives us this warning about not neglecting the gathering, is he also gives us what the opposite is supposed to look like. Instead of neglecting the gathering, what it's supposed to look like when we do gather together. So I actually this morning want to turn back to that same passage from Hebrews and continue a little bit further than we got last week to see this alternative. When you do gather together, do this statement that comes through. Um, If you've got your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to start reading in the same place we did last week, verse 19. Uh, But I want you to be paying attention for... The warning, don't neglect gathering together, but then the thing that is supposed to happen when we do gather together and see uh, what you come away with. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We talked last week about we have access to God through Jesus. Don't neglect the access you have. And then verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, so part of that is what we looked at last week, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. But the sentence doesn't end with that. You get the alternative, but while it's a risk to neglect gathering together, the alternative is but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The opposite of neglecting the gathering is to show up, but also to seek to encourage one another through our gathering. Now, that may not seem like a profound statement. Encourage one another. That's what the scripture is telling us to do. But this is actually a pretty significant idea throughout the New Testament in the way that churches and believers are supposed to support one another. Perhaps there's a couple things we could say about what it means to encourage one another. A good definition of what a church does is that we gather to encourage. A church gathers, a church seeks to encourage. But perhaps the most important thing is, what does this encouragement mean? What does it look like to come together to encourage one another? Does a church exist so that on Sundays you can get a little emotional boost? You could come here and feel a little more optimistic and leave after a Sunday morning feeling better. Uh, Is a church service evaluated by if it makes you happy or not? If I leave here happier than I came in, then I feel encouraged. Is that the way we measure a service? Perhaps we could throw a better party if our goal was to leave here on Sunday mornings with you feeling a little more encouraged and happier. Uh, Some door prizes or some giveaways that might lift spirits when we started service. Uh, Barry could come up and take requests and sing some of your popular favorite songs. That might help everybody feel a little happier leaving here this morning. It's interesting that wrapped up in this idea of being encouraged is not just an emotional sense. That doesn't seem to be what the author of Hebrews is getting at. You would just be happier when you leave. But what he seems to be pointing towards this encouragement for is perseverance. 
Notice how prevalent this idea is through that whole section we read. We draw near with hearts of full assurance, assurance, that we might hold fast the confession of our faith, that we might maintain it, that this confession of hope would be without wavering as we're waiting for the promise to be fulfilled by the one who is faithful to do it. Or that last line, that this encouragement should be all the more as we see the day drawing near. That the goal of this encouragement is not just to make you a happier person, but the goal of this encouragement is to persevere you, to make your faith unwavering, to give you the kind of perseverance and hope and steadfastness that will see you through into the future. The encouragement we are supposed to be offering is not just a sappy, feel-good, inspirational moment to make your week go smoother. We're supposed to be encouraging one another to keep active and alive and solid the faith that we have in Christ. One of the ways this word gets often translated throughout the New Testament, besides encouragement, is exhort. A New Testament word you've probably heard, exhort one another. It's this same word, or sometimes you'll see it as urge or implore, or strengthen. This idea of encouragement is not just a lifting of your emotional mood, but an exhorting, a compelling, an urging, a strengthening. I like to think of the idea of encourage as giving courage, creating courage within you. The Bible gives us this as a command. Don't neglect the gathering, but keep encouraging one another. It gives us these commands, though, not as some kind of test. You'll prove that you're a real believer. We'll prove we're a real church if we have a certain level of attendance. And if you leave here encouraged, we've hit the threshold. The Bible gives us these commands because it knows that there is a human tendency to neglect exactly this work. Our tendency is for our zeal, our faith, to cool over time. For us to begin neglecting the value of gathering together. For this neglecting to become a kind of habit, our tendency is for our faith to falter, for us to get discouraged and tired and overwhelmed by the world and start on our own to think maybe it doesn't actually work, maybe it doesn't actually matter. I hadn't noticed how central this idea of perseverance through encouragement, I hadn't noticed how central it was in the book of Hebrews until working through it again this week. In chapter 10, I think you see it, it's what we just read, this appeal to encourage one another as you're gathering. But then the chapter that comes right after this, Hebrews 10 we were in, Hebrews chapter 11 is that famous chapter, the Hall of Faith, as you'll sometimes hear it called. It's that list of Old Testament characters and the way in which they persevered by faith through the challenges and tests that they endured. It's a big list of all of the ways God's people had been faithful and persevering. And it builds towards the opening lines of chapter 12. Listen to chapter 12, how it opens. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since we have this testimony and stories of people who persevered, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's probably a familiar verse for many of you. We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. 
But the goal, the reason that that's valuable, this collection of gathered witnesses that we have through Scripture, is that it might encourage us to run with perseverance, to be steadfast in our faith. What's interesting is Hebrews, in many ways, has been building to this point. Everything in this book, or even these previous chapters, building towards this command, that your life might be characterized as one which was run with endurance. It's directly connected to this idea of not neglecting to gather together and encouraging one another so that, in addition to this great cloud of heavenly witnesses and surrounded by believers encouraging one another regularly, you might develop a kind of perseverance, a steadfastness of faith, pushing you and leading you into all the things ahead. So that being surrounded by these great stories of faith and by one another's encouragement, you would run with endurance. There really is a warning here that you should be taking seriously that I'm afraid most of us don't think all that often about. We tend to think when we think of the warnings of Scripture as the way sin creeps into our life. And in fact, it does. There are many places where we find ourselves falling prey to temptation, the way we falter, the way that we find ourselves slipping into it. But the warning that builds throughout the book of Hebrews and through so much of Scripture is not just be careful you don't sin, but pay close attention to the way your faith begins to lose its steadfastness and zeal, which may lead you into sin. The big concern is that your faith would begin to slip, that your sense of who God is and what God is doing would somehow diminish, and that so by it, the ways of the world and the temptations of the world would seem more real, more genuine. The big concern is that you would lose the passion and zeal of your faith And by it, slide into sin that at one time you might not have even thought possible. Not in some just momentary lapse of judgment, but in a kind of callous and worn out and tired and hopeless and faithless loss. Sin is set aside, Hebrews 12 says, by the perseverance of faith, by the endurance of faith, by faith being kept active and alive, sin is set aside. I really want you to hear this as a warning, one that's hard to hear because if you're already finding your faith faltering, you don't recognize it, and if your faith is active at the moment, it seems so impossible for it to somehow one day mean less than it does now, but that is the warning. We give a lot of attention to the flashy temptations, the big scandalous sins that break news headlines, the major cultural challenges that seem to be pushing back against our faith, or challenging the things that we fundamentally believe. But the Bible, particularly here in Hebrews, warns that one of the real and most pressing dangers for you is that your faith, once active and alive, would over time become dull and uninspired, a habit of neglecting. You just lose interest or stamina to keep at it the way you have before. The biggest temptation in life might be to just keep going, to run with endurance. More specifically, the way Hebrews puts it, to keep your eye on Christ. That over time, our eyes begin to drift, begin to dart, begin to find other things around us more compelling, more interesting for the moment. But instead, we're encouraged that you would trust that God is faithful to fulfill his promises, that Christ is soon to return, and that our call is to encourage one another 
into the active and ongoing, persevering faith in it. But that is the human tendency, and one you should be really honest with yourself about. No matter how zealous in this moment your faith is, nor if you're already seeing the strain and the signs that maybe it is beginning to falter. Do you recognize that it was Adam and Eve surrounded by all the perfection of the garden, the goodness of living in a perfect place, the perfect relationship, God walking with them in the cool of the morning, that in all of that reality of God's goodness, Eve could be tempted by the lie that she might be missing out on something better. That God might be withholding something. That there might be something else out there. And with it, her heart, her eye, her faith began to drift from God to other possibilities. Peter could walk on water as long as he kept his eyes on Christ. As miraculous as it was, even he found himself looking down and beginning to sink. Peter could declare Christ the Messiah, one moment, and a few days later, be so overwhelmed by the pressures of the world as to deny him. Paul would later confront Peter in Galatians 2. Because of the important people that had come into town, suddenly Peter began to slip into some of his old prejudice. Things that the gospel had freed him from suddenly became more important. The phrase Paul used is that he was no longer walking in line with the gospel. Paul would warn Timothy about those who had had faith but had now shipwrecked it. Or in Hebrews 6, just before we come to this passage, we read, Those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away. That it is possible for you to know all of God's goodness and experience all of his gifts and the power of his Holy Spirit and then gradually over time lose interest. It really is fascinating how pervasive this temptation is across scripture. Not just that you would stumble in sin, but that the faith that was so alive to you one day, years later, can disappear altogether, can shipwreck. This is the temptation to have and to lose, to see and suddenly be distracted, to taste and forget. And so it's with this temptation in mind that the author of Hebrews says, don't neglect showing up and keep going, keep persevering, and do it by when you come together, encouraging one another in faith strengthening one another's faith, urging and compelling one another into this perseverance of faith. It is not within the human heart, thanks to the brokenness and corruption of sin, for us to sustain faith at 100% across the entirety of our life. Scripture anticipates there will be times where your faith will be weakened, shaken, cracked, or something will distract you and lure you away, or some devastating news will cause it to falter. And it anticipates in that moment that through this discipline of gathering together, you will find yourself surrounded not just by a heavenly witness, but an actual congregation of people who will strengthen you and encourage you and compel you and urge you on into faith. Christ did not... Give us this work to do on our own. Keep your faith active. Keep your faith alive. Don't falter. Instead, he forms these little gatherings of believers 
pours out upon them gifts of the Spirit, callings, pulls them together regularly that we might encourage one another in this faith. Hebrews actually opens with a pretty explicit command to do this. In Hebrews 3.13, we read, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Here, they pushed it to a daily encouragement. You bear responsibility for one another to find the encouragement and help when you need it and to give it when the people around you need it. We gather and come together on Sunday mornings like this for the explicit reason of urging one another back into active and alive faith. And you do it through emails and text messages and coffee appointments and phone calls Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, week in and week out, and then gather together to do it again on Sundays. You show up because you recognize you may need encouragement today, or certainly you will need it in a day to come, a day when you may not even realize you need it. So you just keep coming. And you come because you know there are people around you who need the encouragement. Though you may feel great in this moment, somebody you set beside on a Sunday or talk to in the lobby just needs presence and reminder that this is real. We show up because Scripture tells us to encourage one another. We show up to remind one another of what is true, to remind ourselves of what is real. We come to be reminded that there is a kingdom at work in this world that is not of this world. We come to remind ourselves that we are participants in it, adopted into it. We come to be encouraged, to feel our courage to live out our convictions in this world emboldened by one another. So how is it that this thing we do together on Sunday mornings is supposed to encourage you? Why do we do this? Maybe we should just create a big circle and we could all just share what we're struggling with and help some of you say, I would never show up for that again if that's what this turns into. What is it we do with worship and a sermon, and communion, and saying hello, and taking prayer requests? How do these individual components of what a service is lead us to encouragement? And I think that's the right question to ask, because all of us have opinions. The kinds of sermons we like, the kinds of worship music we like, the kinds of church experiences, services. But the real question is, How are these things contributing to the encouragement of one another when we gather together? So briefly, I want to walk through a few of them. And again, the whole point of this series for us has been, what is it God's doing here? So what does it look like for us to do these things in such a way that they would encourage us? So let me start with this one, scripture and preaching. Uh, I think it might be helpful for me to describe, in my opinion, what I think a sermon is supposed to be. Uh, That is another question that probably seems pretty obvious for you. For some of you, it's 45 minutes to get your fantasy football lineup in, or maybe to make a shopping list in the Martian somewhere. Uh, uh, Nobody falls asleep. I've never seen that here. Uh, No, what is a sermon? What are we supposed to be doing when we come together and listen and learn from Scripture? Most people think about a sermon as an opportunity to learn more about the Bible, and surely we do that. We learned a lot about the Gospel of John, spending a year in it together. Or maybe a sermon exists so that we could learn how to live as a Christian. What are the applicational things that we should be doing? Or perhaps a sermon exists so that we might have better theological definitions. We'll know that we know what is true and the ability to articulate it. 
All of those things certainly happen in a sermon, but in my opinion, those are the byproducts, the outcomes, and not the real thing that is supposed to happen when you listen to a sermon. That's true, but what is the core thing? The real point of preaching is to set our lives into the world of Scripture so that by Scripture we might come to have our faith encouraged and built. We come taking Scripture seriously, that we might see the way in which our lives fit within its world, its story. To learn to perceive grace and faith in the stories of Scripture so that we might leave here and by the same skills learn to recognize grace and faith in our own lives and neighborhoods. The world has a way of elbowing God out, and the world is constantly pitching you all kinds of storylines, what matters most, what's most significant, where things are going, And the core thing that a sermon does for us is reorient our lives back into the story of Scripture, the thing that God is doing and that God has said he is faithful to still do ahead of us. A good sermon encourages you. That doesn't always mean that it leaves you feeling good. Sometimes sermons convict. Sometimes they challenge. Sometimes they do make us uncomfortable with their implications. They exhort and they build faith and they push that faith to be alive and active. I like the way N.T. Wright describes what a sermon should do in the context of the world around us. He says, Where no attention is given to preaching and teaching and to constant lifelong Christian learning, people quickly revert to the worldview or mindset of the surrounding culture and end up with their minds shaped by whatever social pressures are more persuasive, with Jesus somewhere around as a pale influence or a memory. That really is the risk of this world. And to be honest with you, a 45-minute sermon dropped in the middle of a week of work is probably not enough to do it. It takes more conversations and reading and your own study of Scripture. But this is a starting point towards that work, that we would come here and reorient ourselves into the story of Scripture, that we might disorient, leave the world's story instead. My test for a sermon on whether it does this, and feel free to use this of our services as well too, my preaching. When a sermon concludes, do you feel motivated? What do you feel motivated to do? Hopefully you walk away saying, I learned something, a Greek word, some first century historical reference. Hopefully you leave here willing to take some action or some application you can apply. But for me, the real test is always, do I find my faith built? And do I feel my heart moved worship. At its base level, that's how I constantly evaluate, are these sermons working in our congregation or not? Was that sermon effective or not? It has less to do with, did you learn something? And more to do with, did we as a congregation feel moved to worship God in a more real and genuine way, having seen what the scripture offered us? Do we see with a better clarity what God is doing? And are we motivated to humbly participate in that by worship? It's one of the reasons that from the very beginning, we've actually done most of our worship after the sermon. That breaks the model. You're supposed to come in and you're supposed to do the worship at the beginning, right? But this for us is that second question. How is worship an encouragement? If the sermon is supposed to encourage us, what does the worship do? Um, I don't see worship as a warm-up for the sermon. We come in, we sing some songs and get ourselves focused so we can hear the scripture. Worship, if you think about the way we've described it before, one of the things we do when we worship is we're ascribing value to something. 
We're declaring to God how we see him, the way in which we recognize his glory, his significance. Uh, If you were with us before, we've often talked about this word glory, and the way I like to define it is weightiness. Something weighs something. If something has great glory, it's heavy, it's weighty, it's significant. What we do when we worship is we weigh things. We come together and we reset our scales, recognizing that Christ is the weightiest, most glorious, the heaviest, the most significant thing in our life. And then through worship, everything else gets reweighed by that weight. Uh, I have a Sunday tradition. We have my, uh, Ashley, one of her grandparents' uh, grandfather clocks that we got when they both passed away. And it's in our house, and it runs. If you've ever uh, wound up a grandfather clock, you know it's not like a digital clock. It runs down, and when the weights hit the bottom, somebody has to put the key in the front and wind them and reset it and start, uh, start the pendulum again. And ours runs about a week. So every Sunday, it's my tradition, at some point during Sunday afternoon, I'll go rewind up the grandfather's clock so it'll run a week. I think it's a pretty good image of what we do when we come together to worship. We come together and we reweigh things. We force ourselves to again declare God is the most glorious thing in our world. And so by it, we reorder the other things in our life. And a week's a pretty good time, like that grandfather's clock, for the world to start shifting those weights around in our life and us needing to come back together again and wind the clock, reweigh things, and get things running as they're supposed to. If you miss a few weeks, I've experienced it myself, you come back in a few weeks later and you recognize the weight of my life is off. The things that seemed heaviest and most pressing seem off. And hopefully, if this service encourages you the right way through scripture and worship, you leave here with those things reweighed and rebalanced, the weights as scripture would see them. The third one is this. We listen to a sermon, we worship, we also interact with one another and we pray. At times, the truth is, we struggle, even on a Sunday morning with a good sermon and good worship, to feel encouraged by it. You hear a sermon, you stand through worship, you do believe, but you find yourself still so overwhelmed by something in this world that it's hard to make that faith active or alive as it once was. Again, it's not just you being a bad Christian. Scripture anticipates that this will happen. That endurance is something we have to seek through one another's encouragement. And so one of the ways that we will often do that is by praying for one another. Churches are not a place where you're expected to come in and demonstrate to God and everyone around you your spiritual level of achievement. I'm thankful that has never been a characteristic of this congregation where we would try to impress one another with our spirituality or our attempts at worship. It's a place we come together because we each humbly acknowledge that we need encouragement from other people. We do get worn down. Our faith does begin to fade. We do feel the lethargy of it. Like participants in an A meeting, we come together because we know we need this to keep going. And we're willing to admit we are those who need the encouragement of faith. I know my own nature. I know my own tendency. I know the risks of the world around me. And so we come to bear one another's burdens, to pray for one another, to encourage one another. One of the ways we've often done that in service is by taking prayer requests. Uh, I was with a group of pastors the other day, and they were actually joking about how they used to take prayer requests from the congregation. 
And uh, they were alluding to the fact that that's a fairly old tradition that churches don't do anymore. The idea of people from the congregation just saying something and praying about it together. I kept my mouth shut because I thought, well, we do that every single week, so I guess we're old-fashioned. And perhaps it is. Perhaps there are times, my one fear is that you would come in here and feel like, wow, there's a lot of things to be sad about as we're starting off service. There's a lot of needs. But I'm pretty committed to it, even as we grow Because we need the discipline of knowing there is a place that we can come and say what is most bothering and challenging our faith, and know that there is a group of real human beings who will not only listen and hear, but will take that burden upon themselves to pray and to walk that with you. I want you to hear that happen and see that happen, and know though you may have never vocalized a prayer here in this room in your life, this is a place where exactly that can happen where you can be honest about what is bothering you most, what is most faltering your faith, and know that there is a group of people who will encourage you and walk with you and endure with you. So really this list is pretty simple. Show up, keep going. For both of those, we need one another to do it, to show up gathering together and to keep going, to encourage one another on into that faith. When I said at the beginning we were going to do, as I jokingly called it, a series on why is Bent Oak Church a little bit weird, you probably imagined it was going to be like really insightful or interesting. Or, and the things we've been talking about have been pretty basic, pretty simple. My goal for this series has been that we might take a deep breath, try to set aside our own expectations, our own past experiences or hopes, focus on the things we really are supposed to be paying attention to. One of the things people recognize pretty quickly about our church is that it is fairly simple. (laughs) There's not a lot going on outside of the school production uh, a couple times a year. Uh, We don't do a whole lot of fancy programs or things when we meet together. But that, in many ways, is by design. It's by design because I know my own tendency is to get distracted, to get caught up, to find myself interested in the wrong things, and slowly to begin to lose perspective on those most fundamental things a church is supposed to be and do. Perhaps at times we've been too simple, but my goal in my heart has always been that those things would be genuine and true here, that it would be a place together, that it would be a place through sermons and through prayer and through worship and through relationships to be encouraged where you could be open and honest about the fact that something is causing your faith to falter, and you would find here a group of people willing in a kind of simplicity and humility to bear that with you. I think it's fitting that today we're going to close out service by sharing in communion together. Um, If you have not gotten communion, please feel free. You're not a disruption. They're out on the table right outside. Feel free to hop out and grab one, or somebody can get one for you. But in many ways, communion is the symbol of gathering together as a family and encouraging one another on into this faith. In communion, we find ourselves turning to Scripture, as we'll do in a moment. Communion is an act of worship. It is a sharing together and bearing with one another. And most importantly, what communion is, is a remembering of Christ. It is a gathering together to turn our attention Christ. It is a reweighing of the things that matter most in life. As Jesus would say it himself, doing this in remembrance of him until the day he comes, recentering our lives on this point. All of the Christian encouragement we do should be to this end that we would each see Christ and know Christ 
and believe in Christ in deeper ways. I warned you there were going to be a lot of Bonhoeffer quotes, so another one coming this week. He writes, where people no longer share regularly in the breaking of bread, the early Christian term for the simple meal that took them back to the upper room in remembrance of Jesus. They are failing to raise the flag which says Jesus' death and resurrection are the center of everything. I love that language of raising a flag. That is what we do when we come together. Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus is the center of everything. Ultimately, this is the way we encourage one another. Don't forget Jesus. Don't forget what Jesus has done. Don't forget what Jesus has done for you in your past. Don't forget the commitments you've made to Jesus. Don't forget that he is king and ruler of this world, though so few may recognize it. Don't forget that he has promised to be soon returning. Don't forget that he is good and gracious and that he promises that his burden is light. What we do when we come together through all of these things is fix our eyes on Jesus and encourage one another to see him.